0: Um, we're jumping back into Nehemiah. Now, um, Ian last week uh, covered um, verses 9 through 12, um, but I, um, I want to focus in on a different element and tie them together. And we will move through this quickly. Um, but we're going to finish chapter 8 today. And chapter 8 is a picture, what I believe is one of the first pictures we have of a revival in the Bible. The, the children of Israel who have been exiled uh, in Babylon have come back um, to, they've, they've come back to the promised land, they've come back to Jerusalem. The wall has been built. Uh, they, uh, the city is being rebuilt. Homes are now being rebuilt. And what happens once the wall is complete, and as I said, the purpose of the wall uh, was not to keep people out, but it was to unify the children of Israel around a common theme that they would be united in their worship and allegiance to God, to Yahweh, to the living God, to Adonai. Uh, And that purpose, having a single-minded purpose, being able to give themselves fully to a task. And I love that the task didn't even totally make sense. But it didn't matter because it was a call. This is what God put upon Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah was able to inspire the people toward this goal. The people rallied around it. But what they couldn't have seen when they were moving in obedience to do this thing is that what it was going to lead to was a spiritual revival where the children of Israel um, had a significant change in their history where now they have become a people of the book. Um, and it's a beautiful thing because we, we saw at the beginning of chapter 8 is it's the seventh month and they are, now they're gathered and they are in the city square and they, the people, and this is that picture I'm talking about of participating, they demand that Ezra, the priest and scribe, bring out the book and read the law to them. And as they read the law, remember the Levites, the priest, the royal priesthood, the family um, go throughout the crowd, and as the, as the Torah is being read, uh, the priests are explaining what's being read to the people. And so I just love this picture, and it, and it happens from sunrise to midday. I mean, can you imagine just going and hearing the Bible read for like six hours, and it being... Um, a thing of revitalization, because I don't think most people will think that, like, if I said, you guys, next Saturday, we're gonna do a, um, just meet me here at sunrise, and we're gonna read the Bible until noon. There'd be some of you weirdos that'd be like, yes! Uh, but most of you would be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sleep in on that one. It's all about grace. <laughs> don't judge me. Don't you put that on me. Um, but no, this, this is a picture... This is a picture of when God is moving on the hearts of a people, uh, they begin to do things that they wouldn't normally do. And this isn't normal behavior. There is something spiritually moving in the people. This is the birth of a a reawakening to an identity as God's people. Uh, And it's a beautiful thing. And God's faithfulness, his covenant fidelity to them in spite of their rebellion. And that's a beautiful thing. But something happens, and, and what I want us to see today is the fruit of obedience, um, the fruit of obedience. You know, each week I'm trying to focus in on a particular theme within uh, the text, and I think that this is a, this is a, a really um, powerful um, picture of that. In, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, I, I want us to see first of all, and this is a, I want to just focus in on something that Ian did not Um, put as much attention on which is this understanding that leads to repentance Um, there's a passage in Romans uh, chapter 2 it says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance grace always always precedes conviction grace isn't something you receive once you repent Grace is the thing that's at work that causes someone to repent. God's love toward us, God's movement toward us, it is God who it says in Romans that while we were yet still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That he, that he already made a movement of love toward a rebellious humanity that literally, it says that light came into the world but men preferred darkness. That there is no ability to actually see the love of God unless God first gives us sight. Because it doesn't matter how much light there is if we're blind. And blindness has to be a divine intervention. To be the Spiritual blindness requires a, a movement of God that is always previous to any movement we make toward him. So the children of Israel, they're they're even coming, they may not be aware of God's providential hand guiding them, drawing them back to this place, moving upon them. Now there is an act of obedience. They They have obeyed, they have rallied around Nehemiah, they are excited, and now they're ready to hear from God. But what they probably don't understand is that God is already the one moving them and drawing them to himself. And so this is why when it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. That isn't two sides of the same coin. That is in order. It is in order. Grace always comes before truth. It always comes before truth. There is no response to the truth unless God has graciously opened up your heart to it. This is why Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. Am I sounding relatively reformed, like, like we're some sort of automata or this is some sort of deterministic thing? It is absolutely not. Is there a responsibility on our side to say yes to God's yes declared over our lives? In Jesus, there is. Is, is God the one who does the drawing and the saving? Yes, there is. So which one is it, Josh? Yes. One of the great issues in Christianity are people that are too smart for their own good who think they can figure out God. Uh, we need to accept that the Bible, what I find, it, what find that makes the scripture so compelling is actually it's paradoxical nature. That there is, there is paradox at play always. We are constantly told to respond and to obey. And at the same time, we are told that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by faith. And by, we are saved by grace through faith, faith alone. In Christ alone, by grace alone. Grace is already at, at, um, moving. And here's the thing. We often read a situation like this where it says, the Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priestly scribe, and the Levites who were imparting understanding, the people said to all them, the day is holy to the Lord your God. We think of holiness as something that should create fear and trembling. And I'm not saying that to be in the presence of the living God does not create fear and trembling. It does do that. But it should create that fear, um, uh, the beginning of wisdom. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Um, It's not the end of wisdom. Uh, And it should lead to a reverential or a worshipful sense of awe and wonder at the goodness of God. It says, the day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all of the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the law. There is a repentance that is happening right now. And that repentance is not this. It's not them trembling in terror, feeling like they are, they are about to be dashed by God's cruelty. No, they are weeping and mourning because they see their sin in light of God's graciousness toward them. He has brought them back. He has actually, the law is being returned to the center of their, their worship. They, are, they, they have not been able to do this. They, they thought God had abandoned them. He graciously was with them. And his covenant faithfulness is coming into view in spite. And it's becoming a revelation of their rebellion. And it is that that creates that godly sorrow. It's when it's that picture of a God who's like, Lord, it would be easier if you were angry with me. It would be easier if you were just mad because I can get my head around that when I blow it. But it actually undoes me when God shows me grace when I deserve nothing but judgment. That was my experience in coming to faith. That it is the kindness of God that leads one to repentance. And I just want you to understand this, that you will never follow a God that you are perpetually afraid of and afraid of intimacy with. It is knowing that you are loved on your worst day that actually creates conviction because the gospel is not about creating shame. It's about creating conviction, a conviction that flows out of God's goodness. I am afraid of offending the goodness of God. I'm afraid of offending a God who loves me And I don't want to rebel against him because I want to be intimate with him. And it is love that keeps me coming back again and again even when I drift from the narrow path. And let me remind you, if there's only one way to follow Jesus, that means there's a thousand ways to fall. There's a thousand ways to fall. What we have here is an understanding. The scripture is being illuminated. It's being explained. The priests are going throughout the, the crowd, which I think for us as Christians is a picture of the Holy Spirit who is our teacher, our paraclete. Um, that is the word of God is preached. The spirit illuminates the mind. And I always say that spiritual illumination is not dependent upon intellectual capacity. It is, it is totally dependent upon our surrender to the goodness of God. Surrender to his lordship over our lives. It says, he said to them, Go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those. By the way, I'm reading the Net Translation, which is probably the best word for word translation. Um, I don't generally, I use it always for study, um, but Tim Mackey's kind of gotten me hooked on it because it, it it's, if you want an interesting Bible, the Net Bible um, is filled with like 40,000 footnotes. And it shows everywhere where um, translations, uh, where there have been um, a variety of word choices uh, in a translation. It basically is a, the only Bible that gives you um, a, a view over the shoulder of the translators, why they chose a particular word over, over another way of, of, of translating it. Um, so it's extremely helpful. Um, but I really like the translation here in Nehemiah. Um, He said to them, go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Um, Notice their understanding that leads to repentance. Repentance is a word that I want us to understand. We think of repentance as this, um, like like it's just like a, a, a request for forgiveness. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is a beautiful word that should define the Christian life. The longer you walk with Jesus and the closer you get to him, the more you recognize that there are things that you need to repent from, (laughs) repent of every day. And repentance isn't like, I'm going to stop doing this. It's, Lord, I'm, Every day I get distracted by this voice and by this voice and by this thought and by this idea. And it's every day making a decision to turn to Jesus, to turn back again and again to Jesus. It's a change of direction in the mind, but also in the heart and actually in action. It's a change of direction. That's why I think that it's beautiful that the altar call in the early church was was repent and be baptized, because it, the change of heart was immediately commanded, the people are commanded to change direction, even physically. You were sitting, now you're coming forward. You're, there's, and remember what I said a couple weeks ago, that every spiritual reality that we are called into as Christians should have a physical outward outworking. We lift our hands to God because spiritually we, we recognize we are empty and we need him like a father to pick us up. We, we put our hands open because we recognize that spiritually we are empty without Jesus. We kneel before God because we recognize that he is the creator of all things and deserves our worship. We lift up our voices to him because there is, there is a melody on the heart that happens when we know the salvation of the one who has actually entered into our brokenness and made it his own. There should be a physical counterpart to internal changes, which is why we're calling people to be baptized. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but I love this because here the response, the repentance is actually um, manifested or, or is authenticated um, by, the, by the Israelites' obedience. I love it. They, they go back and it's like, stop crying. Stop it. Stop your weeping. And what's interesting, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for weeping and there's a time for rejoicing. And we think of holiness often as something like to be in the holiness of God is going to make you cry and make you fall on your face terrified. But instead, the holiness of God is actually something that is calling the people to celebration and to a a, a celebratory um, thing. He said to them, go eat these things for the day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of God is their strength. God's joy over them and their joy in him is their strength. And then the Levites quieted all the people saying, be quiet for the day is holy. Do not grieve. So all the people departed to eat and drink and to share their food with others and to enjoy. I love this, this translation. To enjoy tremendous joy. The actual Hebrew, is very interesting. It puts the responsibility on the listener's side. It says to make joy. Great joy is the actual Hebrew there to make great joy. So there is something, there is a movement toward God and a response that leads them into its reality. Um, I had this 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 happen um, when I came out of my anxiety season, and I remember being on the Deschutes River and falling on. My, I hadn't. I, I was. I mean, I was whittling away. Um, I, I didn't eat really for like eight months. I was, my anxiousness was so bad that it was crippling. It was threatening my very marriage. Um, And and, and my mental health was, I mean, it was definitely, uh, it it was a scary, all I can say is it was a very scary time where I thought I'm going to, my mental health is actually going to disqualify me from ministry. I'm going to have to hand over Door of Hope. And this is like year two in its most explosive growth. And there I was on on the Deschutes River and I just, I, I I, had the Lord graciously intervened. He revealed his love to me. He brought to remembrance um, the work that he had done in my life, how he saved me at 27 years old, how he saved my wife two years later, how he blessed me with Henry and with Hattie, how he brought this uneducated, um, you know, 10-year drug-using wannabe rock star and saved my marriage and blessed me with a family and brought me into ministry and gave me a hunger for his word and even understanding and brought me into leadership. And all the way, I mean, he just walked me through in my mind. It was like this reel was being played of all the good things that God had done. But the healing didn't happen until I uttered these words. And it was the recognition that it had been months. I was so tormented by my anxiety that I hadn't thanked God for anything in a really long time. I just pleaded with him every day, Lord, take this away from me. How could you do this to me? How can you do this to me? Why would you let this, why would you let this happen to me? And it wasn't until I got on my knees and I literally fell flat on my face in this field with the sound of the river and I just said, thank you. Thank you. Help me. Thank you and help me. The purest thing that probably any of us could pray other than, uh, You know, you know when you just pray, you're like, there's not even words. You're just like, yep. <laughs> he knows. But it was the, the verbal response, Lord, thank you. Not, it wasn't even forgive me. It was in that moment, Jesus said, you already are forgiven, but you stopped thanking me. He stopped thanking me. And when I thanked him, the action, that action led to a real transformation. And within two weeks, um the the anxiety season lifted. Now I'm always anxious, but this was a beautiful season. And I think that this is something that we see here. There is a there is a response, and the moment they respond, they they are going to make joy. They're actually gonna do, they're weeping. They're feeling sorrowful over their rebellion against God's goodness. And they feel like it's appropriate, but the priests say, no, this is not appropriate. Not now. Right now, I want you to feast. I want you, and I want you to share what you have with those that don't have enough to have the feast. I love I that Nehemiah makes sure that provision is made for those that don't have what, what they need. And it's in their, oh, to, this is them obeying. It's a, an understanding that leads to a repentance, a change of direction. We're like, we're self absorbed in our own grief. Now we're being asked to outwardly move toward the people, and that step of faith leads to them making great joy. And it's in discovering that that they discover that the Lord has always been the source of their joy. Um, It's a beautiful picture of the previousness of God, but still the responsibility that is placed upon our hearts to obey. Insight that leads to obedience. Now look what happens here. But on the second day of the month, the family leaders met with Ezra. So all of that happened on the first day. Now they're on the second day. And they're on the second day of what is traditionally called in Israel's calendar, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. But it was a time in which the children of Israel were commanded to actually build temporary structures. So they'd build them on the roof. You know, the, the homes would have these flat roofs where they could worship in the daytime and they, they could have a, an eating area on the tops of these roofs. And a lot of the children of Israel where they would build these little tents on the, the roofs of their houses or in the courtyards of the temple and in the courtyards of the, of the city of Jerusalem. And it was all a picture. They were to live in a temporary dwelling. So they were to sleep every night in a temporary tent Um, to remind themselves of God's faithful deliverance of them and his leading them through that wilderness period toward the promised land. So once again, one of the key aspects of Christian living is this continual call to remember, remember, remember. Because one of the great challenges that we are confronted with as Christians is that we forget to remember. (laughs) We always are forgetting to remember. Remember. This is why it's not about rote repetition, but it is remembrance that is meant to lead us again and again back to the foot of the cross, back to the altar where we discover that we are beloved of God. And so he says, on the second day of the month, the family leaders met with Ezra the scribe, together with all the people, the priests and the Levites, to consider the words of the law. So they're they're considering it, they're meditating upon it, they're trying to understand it. And I love this. They discovered written in the law. Here is insight, it's discovery. I think that the scripture should always be a source of awe and wonder. I have taught certain passages dozens and dozens of times. I, I've given, I, when I go and guest speak, you know, you ever wonder like how um, uh, some guest speakers are like, That's the best communicator I've ever heard in my life. I'll tell you how they do it. Same way that I do it, which is you give the same message whenever you go to a new place and you give them, you know, 20 years of preaching, you give them your greatest hits in one message. And they're like, this is amazing. You should be the teaching pastor here. I'm like, I literally just gave you everything I've ever had to say that was worth saying in one sermon. Um, so if you listen to me online, you will quickly dismantle any, any altar that you had just put me up on. Cause uh, I, I just learned a trick of, of, but, but Part of that, that's true, but the other part of it is that for me, um, I'm so passionate about people knowing Jesus and coming in, in finding the center in the cross that that message actually never gets old. I don't give it because I can do a great job at it. I give it because it actually is the core value that drives my existence. And because I feel so passionately about that, it always feels new. It always feels fresh. It always feels alive, and I always feel like I have new insights that I didn't have before. So it doesn't matter how many times I preach something because the word of God is living when we allow the spirit of God to be the teacher. And I wanna just clarify that. Worship of the written word breeds arrogance faster than anything else. The written word is meant to point us to the living word, Jesus himself. Um, and so I, so I think people can get quite enamored with the Bible But if the Bible isn't leading you to Jesus, it's a dead book in your hands like any other book. Um, And I think that this is an important thing. They are discovering God in the law. And I love this. She says, they discovered written in the law that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should make a proclamation and disseminate this message in all their cities and in Jerusalem. Go to the hill country, bring back olive branches and branches of wild olive trees, myrtle trees, date palms, um, and other leafy trees to construct temporary shelters as it is written. All I can say is, as a man who leans toward... The title of indoorsy, <laughs> Darcy would be super mad at me if we were in a, a Jewish family because my temporary structure would probably have to be built by her um, in order for it to actually create covering for us. I I like to look at this. I'm like, how would you do? Why why olive branches and. Myrtle, tree, date palms? I, like I would misread it and bring dates and olives. Um, so, uh, but I love this. This, this is a call. They're, this is what we are supposed to do. They're, the people, what I what I think is so profound about this, is that they've opened up the word and they're discovering something that they haven't seen before. And, the, and in that discovery, they see that this isn't just words spoken to us to be object lessons. It's actually meant to be lived. It's actually meant to be acted upon. This shows that they believe that the God who is speaking in the Torah is the same God that is with them in this moment, is my point. Because why would we, when we read the Bible, the question that I would have for you is, people always say, I don't understand a lot of it. Okay, fine. The first time I read through the entire Bible, I probably didn't understand 90% of it. The question is, is what do you do with the 10% you do understand? I I heard a preacher use this little quippy phrase, do what you know and you'll know what to do. (laughs) Do what you do understand and you'll know what to do. It's it's a really simple principle. Like when, if Jesus says the supreme command is love God and love your neighbor, it isn't meant to be read and be like, okay. It's meant to be lived. And we can understand that, and it might be difficult. Well, what does it mean to love a God that I can't see? Well, what does it mean to love anyone? And then ask yourself the question, how do I love others? Maybe I'm supposed to love God the same way, which means that I should actually make time for him. I should actually have time cut out of my day. If Whenever my marriage is rocky, there's usually one reason for it. I am not giving adequate time to the friendship to the partnership. I'm not giving adequate time to conversation. I'm a guy who spends tons of time alone, and so is my wife, but unlike my wife, um, I spend tons of time alone thinking and writing. She thinks more, that, did, that sounded terrible. Um, but I come to her and I wanna process everything I'm thinking. And what that can do in unhealthy times is it doesn't give her a lot of space to share her thoughts and her mind. And she's like, and she'll just have to straight up just And the Holy Spirit, will use my wife again and again to kick my butt. And she'll be like, I'm not interested in being a sounding board for your monologues. I'm like, oh, man. And I'm like, but? <laughs> like, I love it in the morning when she gets up to get her coffee and she'll be, she'll be sitting on her couch doing her devotions. And I'll be like, honey, I just read. And she just looks at me like, no. It's too early, I'm not ready for this yet. <laughs> and I'll be like, okay, <laughs> a little bit later. <laughs> but the beauty of a relationship is it requires, the other night we just sat outside on our deck and we talked for hours. And it's like, this is what it means to get to know someone. It's hearing their story, participating in their lives, engaging with them. How do you fall in love with anyone? By getting to know them. How do you fall in love with God? By getting to know him. So we do understand the command. We just don't actually do it. Is the problem isn't that the case like i don't love god well do you spend time with him no and i don't love him i'm not sure if he's real i'm like well have you ever actually tested that question by spending time with him and asking him to reveal himself to you have you come to him and said thank you and help me (laughs) help me understand i love this because they have an insight that leads to obedience they hear about it and the conviction that repentance is still being played out. It's a change of direction. We're not going to be rebellious anymore. We're going to do what God asks us to do. And we're going to trust the spiritual leaders that he's put over us. Because, listen, they're listening to Ezra and they're listening to Nehemiah. And they, and they are functioning, I love it, as one people. As one people. One body. Finally, it closes with an obedience at least to joy. And this is where we'll close. So the people went out and brought these things back and constructed temporary shelters for themselves, each on his roof and in his courtyard and in the courtyards of the temple of God and in the plaza of the water gate and the plaza of the Ephraim gate. So literally all over Jerusalem, you have temporary structures on people's houses in their court, in, uh, in, in their, in their yards, essentially in the courtyards of the temple and in the, throughout the city, wherever there's, you know, I mean, it sounds, a little, it sounds like Portland. Um, but, but a little healthier, I think. Um, so all the assembly, which, <laughs> that was unnecessary. So all the assembly, which had returned from the exile, constructed temporary shelters and lived in them. They had all returned from exile. So these were people, exiled, these were people that were without homes. And I, I want to just reflect on this for a second, because one of the things that we need to understand is that Jesus said, "The Son of Man has no place to lay his head." He said that in this world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to basically be, as, it, as uh, the Apostle Peter writes, "We're going to be pilgrims of dispersion." That this, the idea of pilgrim or pilgrimage, is that we are we are actually we have a destination that we are moving toward, but it also speaks of. A, of of a homeless reality, that this is not our home, that this is not where our primary loyalty lies, um, that our our call is not to to build comfortable homes for ourselves and create create heaven on earth, um, so that we can just waste away our days um, doing nothing. This isn't the time um, for apathy or for non-response. This isn't the place. Uh, for young people to come and retire. That's not what Dorothy Hope should be about because we live in a time where God is still conducting his great rescue plan of a lost humanity and he's asking you to be the conduit by which it happens. And that participation in that is that the joy is actually the obedience that flows from being with Jesus and doing what Jesus has asked us to do, to follow him, Wherever he goes. And we don't get to pick where that is. When I tried to leave Portland, when I came back from sabbatical and thought maybe my time at Door of Hope was done, and it became very clear as I was going through the Psalm 119 study, the Lord said, You know, you asked everyone else about, so what if people offer you jobs at churches in other states? And it sounds easy because no one knows you there, and you don't want to have to do the work to, to, try, to, uh, to, to try to rebuild um, after something as intense as we've just gone through. And so you asked everybody else, Josh, but you didn't ask me. That's what the Lord convicted me with. You asked everyone else, but you never asked me. And I'm like, all right, can I go? And you're like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm never going to ask you again then. <laughs> no. It's like there was just a strong sense. And you know what? The sense didn't just come for me. It came for Darcy as well because we were like, what are we going to do? Like, Hattie's got two years left. Are we going to go somewhere else? Are we going to start over? Are we going to start another church? Are we not going to start a church? And what we realized is like the goal is actually to find healing from the burnout that we've experienced um, and, to, and to come to a place of spiritual health again. Um, so that we can engage. And we, and once again, just being reminded, God has given us a sanctuary in the city. He's given us amazing friends and community and a, a daughter who has a robust friend group. And like, are we gonna uproot our, our kid on her senior year in high school? No, that doesn't sound very, like the right thing to do. It was like, there were lots of signs that we weren't being released. Um, but there was a strong spiritual sense, this is what God, what I'm calling you to, Josh. And then, and then he gave me the picture of Jonah. How many times do I have to vomit you back up on the shore of Portland before you get it? And it was like, all right, you win. You always do, Jesus. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing that happens. And I love this because you say, so the people went out, they brought these things back, they constructed the temporary shelters for themselves all throughout, the, all throughout Jerusalem. So all the assembly which returned from the exile constructed temporary shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not done so from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. Everyone experienced, I want you to see, in the Hebrew, the first time when it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and it says, now go to your home and make great joy. They're called to go, to obey, to make this thing. In other words, create the space for my joy to become manifest. And now what's happening? The obedience leads to his joy being manifested. What a cool thing. It's, it's, it's not that complicated. Everyone experienced very great joy. Ezra read in the book of the law of God day by day, from first day to the last. So, the seven days of this festival, they, the law was being read, the people were worshiping, and the worship was a, was a, was a place of exceeding joy. And it was a joy that flowed out of a repentance that led to obedience and the fruit of that obedience was that the joy of the Lord was indeed their strength. The joy of the Lord became their strength because the joy that Jesus brings, the shalom that he brings to our lives is not the removal of challenges and suffering and tribulation. It is a joy that comes in the midst of the storm that is the gospel. That is the center. That is the paradox. It is the picture of, the, of Jesus in the, in the ship sleeping in the midst of a storm. This is the joy of the Christian life. It's not the freedom from the difficulties of existence. Life is impossible. We need to embrace the impossibility of life and the absurdity of it without Jesus. I understand how absurd existence is if there is not a God in heaven. Life is absurd without God. This world is absurd without Jesus. And what I always say is don't take yourself or the world very seriously, but take Jesus and his grace incredibly seriously. Because it's what leads to what C.S. Lewis referred to as serious joy. Serious joy. A joy that flows out of the most serious thing that you can ever give your life to. A God who wants you to experience his love for you. And he wants to actually give you the ability to become conduits of that love to everyone that you come in contact with. Because remember what I say, guys. Your neighbor is anyone who is in front of you, beside you, next to you, or behind you at any given point in any given day. And the two commands that make up the Christian life is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a picture of of a, a worship that is flowing out of the fulfillment of those two commands. A love of God, a desire to know Him And that desire to know him and to obey him is leading to them knowing each other and caring for one another. And actually, what is the word that flows out of it to the world around them? Witness. They are making known that God is in this place and we know it. We know it. And that's what I ask you today. Do you have an, do you, are you experiencing the fruit of obedience in your life? obedience to the finished work of Jesus the gospel is about a God who has already done everything that needs to be done our obedience is our daily surrender of our lives at the foot of the cross so that Jesus can be Jesus in and through our lives amen